Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lover. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphorical multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. Have you ever thought that you would be or were happier when you were thinner, prettier, younger, looked a certain different way in a culture that values thinness and beauty and is quite frankly obsessed with women's appearances? It's hard not to believe that your value lies in your appearance. And even though it doesn't, we've been fed this message for so long that it feels like adhering to arbitrary beauty ideals and false promises, killing ourselves to look a certain way, is going to make us feel better and buy us that like love and happiness, confidence, acceptance, even health that we so deeply want. The problem is that chasing beauty ideals isn't going to get us that. But our brains have been thinking like this for so long and we've been engulfed in this giant fucking Ponzi scheme for so long that it's difficult to see a way out, which is why I'm so excited for this podcast episode with Dr. Lindsay Kite, co-author of the book More Than a Body and co-director of the nonprofit Beauty Redefined. We talk about healing body image struggles and specifically the missing piece of the puzzle when we talk about body image. There's so much to unpack that sometimes we can't see when we're in the thick of it. So you can't see something from the inside. You can only see it from the outside. And Dr. Lindsay actually has a twin, Lexi, Dr. Lexi, and they both do this work together. So because they are not only researchers, but also women who have deeply gone through this toxic beauty standard, body image, thin ideal, fat phobic society that so many of us growing up in the early 2000s have experienced, they just put words to this body image struggle like nobody I've ever talked with and whose work I've read before. I mean, you just have to listen to this episode to see that like the way they 
piece this whole thing together just makes it click. And that's exactly what their book, More Than a Body, did for me. I cannot recommend that book enough. Even if you feel like you're on the other side of the body acceptance journey, I still recommend reading it. Not only does it help you see personal individual body image differently, but it also helps you see like the collective body image struggle so much differently. And it's this cool like inner child healing thing where you're reparenting yourself. And I'm also thinking about having children of my own. So it's giving me just a lot, a lot, a lot. Highly recommend their book, More Than a Body. In this episode, we talk about these missing pieces of the puzzle when it comes to body image, how the male gaze affects body image, why losing weight and changing your appearance never ever solves the problem, ways to combat these toxic beauty ideals and build body image resilience. And most importantly, I think both Lindsay and I want you to walk away remembering that Keeping up with beauty ideals is a losing game. Adhering to society's definition of beauty does not buy love, self-love, confidence, health, or happiness. Usually, it only exacerbates the body image struggles. So get prepared for Dr. Lindsay Kite to blow your mind on the podcast today. Here she is. Self-objectification is like this huge missing part of the puzzle when people talk about body image. It's not just oh, I don't feel beautiful. It's, I don't feel beautiful. And I'm thinking all day long about how to fix that and who's looking at me and what they're thinking of me. This outsider's perception becomes like the source by which we judge ourselves. Mm -hmm. I may get judged for this analogy, but when I first read about self-objectification in your book, it reminded me of that unsettling feeling of being a little too high, like smoking a little too much weed. And then you're just like, you're seeing yourself and it's scary. Like it's almost yes. scary. And I don't know why I thought of that. Cause like, I got, I hope I don't get like, too <laughs> no, I actually love that. <laughs> you're like not sober. You're not present. It's not godlike. It's almost like, well, yeah, I know what you mean though. It's like omniscience to like see and perceive yourself as if you're somebody else, but not in a healthy godlike way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the high analogy is so funny because sometimes people say when they get a little, you know, a little tipsy or a little buzzy that the self-objectification kind of stops a little bit and they're able to like, you know, just kind of be in the moment and not be so anxious yeah. and preoccupied and things like that. But yeah, I know what you mean with that that floating above your body just kind of, you know, hyper aware yeah. and anxious about it. That is not a good feeling. Not to hyperanalyze like being drunk and high, but if I'm a little tipsy, I feel like my self-objectification gets worse. Oh, interesting. It's just that I'm almost more okay with it. Oh, yeah. Like it doesn't phase you as much. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I know you're looking at me and I kind of like it because I've been trained to kind of like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the male gaze stuff that you're talking about. That's the male gaze stuff. And it's particularly sticky to talk about as like, I'm newly married and I still feel a lot of shame about it because I'm like, I shouldn't be that way. Like I have a partner who loves me. I have worked so hard to stop objectifying myself. And yet it's so deeply ingrained that sometimes if I walk by somebody and it doesn't even matter what I think of them, I'm still thinking of what do they think of me? Yes. Okay. That is the nature of this male gaze stuff because it's not actually for individual men. It's not really for your husband or for whatever person you're walking past on the street or sitting next to in a meeting. It's this hyper vigilance about thinness, about beauty ideals, about youth, 
about whatever ideals that we are being held up against by ourselves, by society in general. And sometimes it is by particular people around us. Sometimes it is a person's husband. And it's awesome that yours isn't, but it doesn't necessarily take away the self-objectification. Like people aren't fixed when they marry a really nice guy or when the person that they're with gives them great compliments and doesn't objectify them. We still carry around this lens through which we perceive ourselves that's been baked into us from the time we're little girls in this culture that really values thinness and beauty and gives us more attention and you know value in so many ways when we do fit these ideals. So that's why I like to talk about this in terms of Like when I talk about objectification, I like to talk about it in terms of like a faulty game, a losing system. We try to earn these points in this society by being thin or getting smaller or conforming to a body type that's more socially acceptable at this time or, you know, those change over time, whatever. We're always trying to keep up. It is anti-aging ideals. It's the having the thicker, fuller hair and the longer, fuller lashes and whatever the thing is in our culture today. We do those things to try to fit in with these ideals, not just so we can look like and feel like perfect tens and just love the way we look, but so we can feel okay, normal, acceptable, like just able to go out into the world and not be horrified by how we think other people are perceiving us, just like to fit in. And we do all these things. And yet there are so many people who by all accounts do fit the ideals and who are beautiful and thin and you know, all the other things that society tells us we need to be. And yet they still are constantly preoccupied with feelings of what is he thinking? What is she thinking? They are still just as hurt by comments that are negative or critical in any way. And it doesn't work. This is a losing game. We earn all these points and they ultimately buy us nothing. They don't get us safety from being objectified or feeling like objects ourselves. They don't buy us real confidence, a lasting, solid confidence that we need. All of the beauty ideals in the world will not earn us a partner who really loves and values us or helps us escape from health problems, whatever the thing may be. We buy into this ideology our whole lives that beauty leads to greater happiness and greater confidence and greater health. And it just doesn't. We have to shatter the glass around this myth in this male gaze, beauty centric thin ideals culture that has really led us astray. Mm -hmm. And it takes a tremendous self-awareness to really dig deep, be honest with ourselves and, and see that. But what do you say to people who perhaps aren't there yet or are kind of like oscillating back and forth? Because the message I get a lot that I'm sure you have a ton of in your inbox as we speak is, but I was happier when I was thinner, but people did treat me differently when I presented in a certain way. You know, at this point, I've pretty much realized that it's drag. Like we're all performing. We're all told that we have to. And it's so funny. There's a lot to dissect there. This is one of those conversations that I'm like, I have so much to talk to you about. I'm (laughs) stuttering because I don't know where to go. But what do you say to people who are like, I did feel better. Like people did like me more. Men were more attracted to me. I got better job opportunities. I mean, there's so much research on that too. It's a sad reality in some ways, and it still buys into this narrative where we project more positive things into our histories and even into our presence when we perceive ourselves as being beautiful or fitting these ideals and being accepted by other people. So in some ways, yes, there is research that shows that women are passed up for promotions who don't fit the ideals, who are too fat or too old or otherwise in ways that men aren't judged at all. And there's research that you don't get as good of 
care at doctor's offices if you're outside the normal weight range of the BMI. All of these things are true. And yes, people get less positive attention out in public from strangers, from dating opportunities when they don't fit the ideals. But I am actually surprised by the number of people who say, like when you really ask them to be really critical and really honest with themselves, and they think back to the time in their lives when they were closest to the beauty ideals of the time, when they were their thinnest, whatever it was. And a lot of times when they think back on those times, if they're honest with themselves, they will recognize that they were extremely preoccupied with what they were eating, with the amount of exercise they were getting, that it was a life-consuming project to be that thin. They were still self-objectifying just as much, still picturing how they look like and still not going to certain activities and putting themselves up for opportunities because they didn't think they looked good enough. All of this holds people back regardless of how they look, regardless of how close they are to the ideals. And I think often people will look back in their histories and say, well, I was happier when I was thinner. I was happier when I was whatever. And sometimes that's just because it was 10 years ago and you were 21 and your life was easier, you know? And sometimes it's because people who maybe didn't really care for the whole you did give you more attention and more validation because you were hotter to them then. And you brought them the kind of, you know, satisfaction that they were looking for. This is all still within the realm of women being objects, women being consumed, whether visually or physically or whatever ways, by other people. And that can bring rewards in a system that values beauty and thinness more than anything. Of course it can. But ultimately for women, those rewards are very fleeting. When we do fit those ideals and we've, you know, given everything to try to look like how we think we should and feel positively about it. Women aren't necessarily happier. They're not necessarily less preoccupied with how they look and with what they're eating and their exercise and all of that kind of stuff. It becomes, like I said before, kind of life-consuming to have to be defined by those things. And yet it doesn't always lead to the positive outcomes that we've hoped for. That's a hard thing for people to hear, I think. Like even in, in speaking with friends, I've had people who are so hesitant and reluctant to give up their beauty ideals. This idea that like, it's really just 10 more pounds and then I'll feel great. I just know that, you know, I'm not going to eat whatever food groups for the next six weeks. I'll lose five, 10 pounds. I'm going to be running however they think they need to lose weight. And the more I question them and I say, what do you think you're going to get from that? How do you think you're going to feel differently? Like really, what is it that you're pursuing? Sometimes what they're pursuing is more attention from men or people that they want to date. It's feeling more confident in a bikini on the beach or whatever it is. And yet even reaching those goals doesn't guarantee that you will feel more confident. Most people get there and they say, oh, I don't look how I thought I was going to look 10 pounds down. It's just going to be another five. Then I'll get back to living a normal life and not being so obsessed. I just want people to be really, really critical of what they mean when they say, I just felt better when I was smaller. Was it because your life was easier and different? Or was it because you weren't so winded when you got to the top of the stairs after a football game at a stadium or whatever? Is it something else that you want to reach? Figure out a goal and reach that. What kind of goals where you have control? We don't always have control over how we look, our weight, how our faces change, all of those things. Or what other people think. Especially what other people think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We try to reach these little goals thinking then I'll get the acceptance and validation that I want. That is a failing equation. It just simply doesn't work that way, but it does give us the semblance of control. Like I'm doing what I can to change so that I will get these things that I want in my life. 
I just want to break people's hearts and say it doesn't work that way. Maybe you've seen people who lost a bunch of weight and then found the perfect man and they have the greatest life ever. Do they? Like, really? Is it really? You know, like, okay, you may get certain rewards for fitting ideals and, you know, weight loss and weight issues in this society are, you know, a whole separate conversation, even from beauty a lot of times. But I just want people to be really critical when they think back on their happiest times and their best bodies in quotes. What I'm hearing you say is that there are a lot of like cognitive fallacies at play there. And even if we do see some controlled data research about how certain people do get treated differently, and that is all very real societal forces, I guess the the big question for me was like, do I want to participate in this? And or does this align with my values? And if this actually works, like, I don't know, I lose weight, I put on my drag makeup, get that job, get the boyfriend, whatever. Is that really the way I want to win? Question mark. And that kind of helped me. Like, do the costs outweigh the benefits? Well, my majors. Your major? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My major is economics. So that's like a little dorky. (laughs) That's actually great. (laughs) I'm like, Mary, who talks like this? Why do I talk like this? (laughs) No, I think it helps to put it in like different metaphorical terms because everybody's brains work differently. And like the cost benefit analysis really, it does kind of hold up in these ways. But in some ways, it's also an ethical question. Like, we may receive benefits, but like you said, at what cost? Does it make things worse for other people? Does it uphold societal expectations that do have tangible harms on other people? All of this is so important. That's actually like the last chapter of our book. Lexi and I wrote this book, More Than a Body. It's been out for two years already. It's been amazing. I'm really happy to see people all the time that are still finding it for the first time and reading it and sharing it with all the women in their lives. And that's where we end the book is this idea that we all need to kind of take inventory of not only you know the ways we benefit in society from fitting certain ideals, but also our goals for the future. Do we want to mm-hmm. participate in this system, continue upholding a system that does make sure that women who are thinner have more advantages than women who aren't? And, you know, like in some ways we, you know, lose weight and put on the drag and everything and do all this work. And then we find partners that love us because we're so hot and we look good on their arm. And sometimes it doesn't go a lot deeper because we don't even value ourselves more deeply than that. What we desperately want is that acceptance based on our physical outer selves. And when we get that, sometimes we'll put on a good show and be that kind of surface level, beautiful person that our partner wanted to be with. Then things change because there's no way to maintain a lower weight than is healthy for you for a long period of time without destroying yourself. Age, pregnancy, illness, disability, all these things will inevitably change our bodies regardless of how bad we don't want them to. And when partners become disgusted with us and leave us, did we really win? You know, did we really win by buying into these ideals? It's a very messy, complicated conversation. But for a lot of us, we don't actually face tangible barriers to success in our current bodies with our current faces and our current hair and skin colors. And we need to be really honest with ourselves when we think like straight-sized bodies, women with all of these features will say things like, I just felt better then. And like, well, you know, we're in a system that values beauty and thinness more than anything. So what am I going to do? You know, not align with it? Yeah, you're going to align with it because you kind of already do. A lot of people are born into bodies that fit these ideals. A lot of people are not, and a lot of people face real tangible disadvantages in the workplace, in healthcare, 
in terms of access, access to seating and to planes and to fitting rooms and all kinds of things that people in smaller bodies don't ever even think about. And so we can't use those excuses to say, well, it's a really hard world to live in when you don't look ideal. It is hard for some people, but it's probably not hard for a lot of the people who are using that as an excuse to to get more Botox and to, you know, get the latest weight loss medication and to, you know, starve themselves and be an example to their daughters of needing to be thin in order to be accepted. Yeah. We need to be willing to step outside of that game and say, I'm going to show up how I am. I'm going to try to be the best example as I can to the people around me, including younger people, daughters, nieces, students, whatever peers who need to look to me as someone who's not going to constantly talk about dieting and, you know, what I'm eating and how disgusting I feel and how I can't wear my swimsuit because it's, you know, it's too humiliating. We can be examples of that. Even if we don't 100% love our bodies and particularly not love the way we look, we can still be people who opt out of some of those ideals in the system that sometimes rewards them and sometimes doesn't. Yeah, that's the difference between the people who throw their hands up in the air and say, well, life is just unfair. So I'm going to reap all these rewards that I know I can get and afford and achieve and just keep it unfair. And the people who are like, this is unfair and I'm going to like do what I can to, I don't know, fix it. I don't judge any any woman, especially for the cosmetic procedures and everything, because I know what they're victims of. And I try not to judge myself when I feel bad and then think a face full of makeup is going to fix my confidence. There are, you know, certain things that we resort to. I guess I start getting really sad when people start justifying it in that way that just keeps playing the game and keeps disempowering certain people. And that's where like the body image conversation, I feel like a lot of people even in our spaces fail to extend it to injections, Botox, like you said, the latest weight loss pills, everybody has their thing, you know, or they're like, oh, this is okay because of this. Exactly. And it's tough. It's tough out there. So I don't judge anybody, but I think we can be doing a little bit, a little bit more in in each of our lanes. Yeah. I do think it's, it's kind of an ethical question for people. A lot of people come to this conversation and they'll hear something like this and their first question they'll look at us and they'll say, okay, well, it looks like you have mascara on. You know, it looks like you've highlighted your hair talking to both of us. You obviously take pride in your appearance. So why shouldn't I? And my first response is always just to disarm people to say, absolutely. I buy into some of these ideals. I'm a single woman. I live in New York City. I buy into these ideals. I am rewarded for buying into some of them. I have not fully opted out of this patriarchal BS culture that we live in. And I really wish that I could, but there are things holding me back from doing that. But in all the ways I can, I've chosen to scale back, to opt out of certain things, to prove to myself that these things don't define me, that I don't need them, that they don't actually bring me confidence and peace and happiness and whatever. I wear the same makeup, like level of makeup I've been wearing since I was in middle school. I'm not saying that's a bad or a good thing, but I actually refuse to buy into some of the new trends that have come out in the last like 15 years. I can't do eyelash extensions. I can't do injections. I can't do microblading of the eyebrows. I can't do lip fillers, any of those things. I know that I would look awesome <laughs> with any of those things. I know that I would think that I was so beautiful and I would probably get more attention and have more dating options and whatever. But I can't do that to myself because I'm not going to raise the bar on what it means to look acceptable as Lindsay. I just can't do it. I don't want to be 
so dissatisfied and disappointed with my normal face afterward, my normal body. So I do whatever I can to choose where I draw the line in a place that's healthy for me and really take inventory on the ways that I push those boundaries and sometimes buy in and think like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'd have more options on my dating profiles if I just, you know, did this or that. And I check myself when that happens. And for other people who are kind of dipping their toes into this conversation and first thinking about objectification and the ways we're rewarded for it, I want them to really stop and think like, I'm not judging anyone for any choices that they make in the name of beauty at all, even if they make you know more or less choices than I do when it comes to beauty. But I do want people to be critical of the pressures that we are under to comply with these ideals and be critical of whether or not we are really reaping the rewards that we think we will by complying. It doesn't always work that way. And that can be really disheartening for people. People get really defensive about that question and that challenge of like, why do you really do it? When you say, I got this breast enhancement for me, if you lived alone, if you were alone in the world, would you do that same thing? No, you wouldn't. Because we live in a world that's taught us that boobs need to be high and round and perky and a certain size and shape. We just have to be critical of it. That's all it is. I can't tell you what's right or wrong for you at all. And I can't judge you by what you decide is right or wrong. But I can say the only reason we do a lot of the things we do is because we live in a culture that values women for our bodies first and our humanity second. And we need to decide Mm -hmm. how to work within that system or try to change it, sometimes from within that system. About three years ago, I started putting together a playlist with uplifting, inspiring, and empowering songs. I originally did this for myself because I love music of all different genres, and every time I would notice a song that just made me feel good, I would add it to my self-love playlist. And now there are over 300 songs on my Spotify self-love playlist, and these tracks are perfect for when you're getting ready, trying to hype yourself up, or going through a struggle and need a reminder for how badass you are. If you love music as much as I do, then go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist to get the Spotify link. It will ask you for your email so that I can send you this self-love playlist. And full transparency, this will also put you on my email list where I send out a monthly newsletter about stuff I'm thinking about, personal things, things I don't really share on social media, and all the happenings in the Mary's Cup of Tea world. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist and let's start jamming to my self-love playlist together. Dr. Renee Englund from the University of Texas at Austin, in her book about like the obsession with women's beauty, she has a chapter called Tone It Down. And that really resonated with me because it's like how I approach eating meat. Like if my mom is cooking this elaborate, cultural, traditional dish, I'm not going to not eat it because we're there. It's a part of my culture. I'm going to enjoy it with my family. Like those benefits kind of outweigh the cost for me. But cooking on my own, like I'm just going to like reduce a little bit my consumption of meat because I just can't be extreme with myself. So I do the same thing with beauty. Like I went from shaving my legs once a week to like maybe once a month. And like down there, I got a trimmer, like no razor has touched it in a year. Whereas before I was like smooth as a baby, you know? 
Those are big steps too. They feel small and doable, but they're big in that, for example, like my husband, this is very intimate, but he was like, I actually love this look on you, (laughs) you know? That's amazing. And that's something he probably wouldn't have been open to liking in the like standard definitions of like, you know, beauty. So it's been lovely. And like, same with you, like mascara is kind of what I love love to do. We'll not give that up. You can take it from my cold (laughs) hands. (laughs) But, you know, waxing eyebrows. And honestly, the pandemic helped me with this because we were seeing less people. And I started doing less and less beauty things. And I went from, you know, dyeing my hair four times a year to once a year when I was able to get in, you know. And the money and time and energy that it saved me has been quite liberating. That is what I love to hear. And all these little changes did not make your life worse. And they didn't make people love you any less or respect you any less is what I'm hearing. Like your husband's positive reaction, that's amazing. A lot of husbands might not say a thing and romantic partners wouldn't say a thing. Yet we as women continued to do these things to ourselves to have to get waxed and to shave constantly and deal with all of the pain and time and whatever repercussions come from that. Razor bumps. And we do that just thinking like, well, men don't like this. Men would be disgusted if they saw hair down there. I've done the exact same thing as you. No more. No. No more. No, no more. We're rocking a There's no back. point. <laughs> it's the 70s, okay? Lindsay, <laughs> I grew up so painfully Russian. That's like my culture. So my parents are Jewish refugees from Russia. I grew up with a daily message. And when I say daily, I mean every time my grandma's brushing my hair into this tight ponytail of beauty is pain. Oh, like the amount of pain we put our genitalia through, it should be like outlawed. It's nonsense. It It is nonsense. nonsense. And that ideal came from porn. It came from porn. Why do we think that we need to have prepubescent adolescent bodies as adult women through our entire lives? Because we're afraid that men won't like it. That's not a good enough reason. It's not a good enough reason for the pain and the money and all the negative side effects that come alongside it. That's an example of one of those things that as women, we can be willing to challenge ourselves on, challenge your preconceived notions about what the negative effects will be of not investing in that and doing that thing all the time. Just try it. See how it is. Like it worked for you. It works just fine for me. Yeah. Yeah. My best advice for people who are dating women in particular is to go on a first date with minimal to no makeup. Oh yeah. Love that. I did that with my now husband. It was kind of like my rule. First of all, it's expensive and time-consuming, and I don't owe you that on a first date. You, you don't know who that man's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, why would I waste my YSL foundation on this? Anyway, I do want to go back to self-objectification and the male gaze just because that's so real and so painful for people and talk about your book and the transformative effect that it's had on me. So let me start with this quote that I feel like should be more viral than it is. I wish it was on billboards. I wish we had, like, satellite blimps in the sky with this message. (laughs) You and Lexi wrote in your book, girls learn that the most important thing about themselves is how they look. Boys learn that the most important thing about girls is how they look. Girls look at themselves. Boys look at girls. Girls are held responsible for boys looking. Girls change how they look. Boys keep looking. And the problem isn't how girls look. The problem is how everyone looks at girls. Solve the problem by teaching everyone that girls don't exist to be looked at. Can you speak more into... The process of writing this paragraph, that's me as a fellow author, I just need to know. It's so simple, yet so impactful. And how did you, you and your sister personally come to this 
realization of the infamous male gaze, because I feel like it hasn't been presented like this ever before. Why did you reading that give me goosebumps and I wrote it? (laughs) Because you're a damn good writer? (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while since I read that particular passage. And it's funny because I wrote that. I remember sitting alone at a desk thinking about all of the ways that women, that girls in particular, we were dress code controversies were going on at the time. It was girls getting kicked out of school dances for wearing dresses that some random administrator at the front desk thought was inappropriate. I was that girl. Oh, it makes my blood boil. And it happens every year. It happens all the time. It happens to swimmers now when their swimsuits right up their butts because of the nature of swimsuits. Girls face the burden and all the repercussions of living in this objectifying sexist society because all we care about is how girls are perceived. We coddle boys, teaching them that they have no control over their thoughts, over their vision, over their actions, and girls face the repercussions. It is not fair, and I want everyone to be so pissed about this. Don't blame those girls who were taught to believe that they could be most valuable and receive the most positive attention in the world and have the most success by looking good and then penalize them when they do look good and they do fit the ideals and they do want that attention. We taught them, we let them be absorbed in a society that has reinforced that at every turn. We cannot fault girls for acting that way and choosing clothing that reflects those sexual ideals. I don't fault them one bit and I want people to have so much more compassion and empathy for girls that just simply doesn't exist. We think they're being slutty is what a lot of adults think. And what they're really doing is just doing what they were taught by our whole society and by their parents who reinforce that certain girls are attractive and certain girls aren't. And and it's great to get attention from people until it looks like they deserve that attention, you know, and we don't like it anymore. So when I sat down to write that, I didn't sit down specifically thinking, I'm going to write a thing that encapsulates this. I was like, how do I convey this idea that girls aren't to blame and that in a lot of ways the society are and adults are for perpetuating it. And it kind of came to me, it felt a little poetic in a sense, you know, it's just like short line after short line. I started with a lot of words and I worked, I remember for like over an hour just to whittle it down. What is the core of this truth? How do you sum up a conversation about modesty that is just so fraught in so many different communities and a conversation about dress codes at a time when it's so heated on social media in particular and summarize it in a way that is just as concise as it could possibly be. And and that's what I came up with. I'm glad it really resonated with you. And I hope that it continues to hold true and that more people find resonance with that because it's just the simple truth. Yeah. Girls aren't here to be looked at. So why are we blaming them when people look at them? Yeah, exactly. It's it's the way that the word look kept appearing line after line, I think is what did it for me. Mm, yeah. And how, you know, that last line is that, or the second to last line, the problem isn't how girls look. The problem is how everyone looks at girls. I would even say like the problem is that everyone looks at girls, but yeah. that's, that's very intricate. The fact that we're always being, being looked at. I'm curious to know like what your upbringing was like in terms of body image and your dynamic with your twin sister and what what that experience was that led you to yeah. pursuing your PhDs together, working together, writing together on this particular topic. 
I do think it's kind of a unique way to grow up being an identical twin. We looked extremely similar, so much so that, you know, every time we walked in a room, people were scanning our faces and bodies to pick out the differences. And the first time we meet anyone, they're trying to figure out who's the one with the rounder face? Who's the one with the crooked teeth? Who's the one who's cuter, nicer, smarter, has more boyfriends, was more popular, whatever. We were judged on everything. And people lose all sense of right and wrong when they're evaluating twins, I swear. Like they put us in a hierarchy, whether they know it or not. And Lexi and I looking so similar and recognizing that people were judging us and trying to distinguish us based on our looks became very hyper aware of how we looked and how we were being perceived by other people. And on top of that, which is a very common experience for all girls, especially growing up in cultures that value beauty so much. On top of that, we're also able to look at each other as if we're looking at a reflection of ourselves, but a reflection from the back and in different clothes and in a swimsuit and see how other people were looking at our twin sister as if we are watching ourselves like an outsider. That hurts my head. Oh, it was, yeah, it was something that obviously we didn't even notice was different. Wouldn't ever put a name to it because it was literally just how you live. It's how your brain works. It's how you go through the world. But for Lexi and I, being able to see our identical counterpart from the outside, from every angle, I think made us even more fixated on beauty and particularly on weight. We grew up in an environment in, you know, we were born in 85. So growing up and older in the 90s and the early 2000s during our formative years, when thin ideals, sexist patriarchal ideals were at absolutely their height in media, where we didn't have nearly as many images, examples, as you could see today. Obviously, there wasn't social media, but also there were only, I don't know, 40 cable channels, if that, Mm -hmm. and a much smaller number of movies released every year, a certain number of magazines. All of the women that we saw looked extremely uniform, extremely one-dimensional. They were white, they were thin, they were young, they had curves in all the right places. This is what we perceived as normal not only just like attractive and perfect 10, but like acceptable. And so growing up in that environment, our parents, our extended family, everyone we knew believed that thinness was equivalent to health, that you could improve your health by losing weight. That was an unquestioned notion in the 90s and the early 2000s. Thankfully, a lot more people are questioning it today. Thankfully, a lot of research has shown that those two are not equivalent whatsoever. And actually that your activity level and so many other things dictate your health and fitness much more so than your weight or how you look or anything else like that. But yeah, Lexi and I grew up in a pretty conservative environment, really being fixated on how we looked, being a little thicker than all of our friends, and just growing up being very, very aware that we were being judged and evaluated, that we could see each other. I was constantly judging Lexi. Lexi was judging me. The ways we would tear each other down, because we were super competitive and we would fight a lot. And the ways we would fight would be to say like, oh, you're so fat. You look like such a fat pig today. You should never wear those pants. I can see your cottage cheese through your pants. And we're talking about each other's bodies as if they're disgusting and so different from our own. She looked exactly like me. And yet I would still be crushed by those comments and, you know, seeing her looking in a way that I didn't like. And that led to this kind of, you know, lifetime of hyperfixation on appearance and really feeling competitive and comparative 
But then we got to college and college was a really hard time because we were not only competing over boys and like to see who can form their own identity the fastest and have the better identity and have the better major and be better at it. All of these things Mm -hmm. like are this underlying source of tension between us. But we also both took the same class, but at different times during the week. It was a required course for journalism students and it was on media smart. So basically a media criticism class. There were all these different elements to it, but I remember and Lexi does too. The very first day of that class, they went into ideas of how women are represented in media and particularly in magazines and in fitness media. And that was the first time in my entire life that I stopped to think and really realize that all of the bodies I had ever seen who were represented positively in media looked one way. They were all extremely thin and young and almost always white. And their faces had very European features with long hair, whatever. I was holding myself up against those ideals unknowingly. Everyone in society was holding me and everyone else up against those ideals. And that was the first day that I started to realize that those ideals were engineered to drive and feed off our insecurity so that we would buy products and services for the rest of our lives in order to fit those ideals. It also taught me about patriarchy a little bit for the first time in a society that is led by and run by and caters to men as the default, then women are the other. And how do we gain power and beauty? By being appealing to the men. And all of that started to radicalize me and Lexi from a really young age. That was the first time we found feminism. It really resonated with me. Also contradicted some of like the political messaging I had grown up with. And so that was kind of a struggle to reconcile what I really believed. But over time, feminism won. And Lexi and I ended up pursuing masters and PhDs together inadvertently, studying the same things and writing really complimentary dissertations on the objectification of women and how women can build resilience against these ideals, like not just get mad about it, but actually push back against it as individuals. And that led us to forming this nonprofit, Beauty Redefined, and speaking engagements all over the place and writing a book and let's see, it's been 14 years since we started this. So that makes me feel like I'm late in life in age, but I guess I'm not. (laughs) Well, you're experienced, both of you, but that sounds like it was, dare I say, like healing for your sisterhood too? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. We stopped competing years ago and it was right around the time that we started doing this work together. And believe me, we fought like crazy during the first couple of years of like creating our visual presentation. And we co-authored our master's thesis so that we could both do separate projects on top of it. And I remember fighting so much during that time about who was doing more work and who was doing less and who was the better writer and whatever. But over time, we definitely joined forces for good instead of like tearing each other down for evil. And it did heal us. It 100% healed us because I was no longer gaining my value from being the most beautiful person in the room and from being better looking than my sister or more popular than my sister or whatever it was. And she wasn't either. And another thing that helped was her getting married (laughs) because then it's like, oh, she's got a husband and I love him. He is wonderful. Like she's done great. They've been married for 10 years, which is so crazy to me. But that meant that we were no longer competing for attention from boys, which is one of the things that will tear down a relationship faster than anything Mm -hmm. in the world, I think, Mm -hmm. for girls. So that was huge. Yeah, I just can't imagine that whole competing for boys thing as a twin because you 
look the same. Yeah. So there's this element of like, if you like her, that you would probably like me. So the only thing that could differentiate us is like, I don't know, personality. Yes. And that makes the competition even fiercer, you know, like, oh, I'm more fun than you and you're more fun than me and he likes you better. Why would he like you better? Ridiculous. <laughs> and I know that's all like adolescent and teenage and college stuff. And everyone kind of goes through it in their own ways with sisters or with friends or just peers or whatever. But all of that is really exacerbated by this system that tells us that attention from men and especially relating to our beauty is you know, yeah. equivalent to our value when it's so not. Yeah. And there's many layers there. Like there's that unique experience of the time that you were born in the early 2000s. And even like the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, not just with beauty, but that message that women have to be everything for everyone because now we have equal rights or whatever the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and then exactly. the unique experience of being in a conservative household in the US and a twin. Yeah. It was a perfect storm <laughs> for just yeah. the most severe body image issues. Yeah, definitely was obsessed with weight loss for my whole life. And thankfully, doing this body image work has been completely healing on that front too, to the point where I'm just like not triggered by things anymore. And that's one of the things I want people to learn is that as you build resilience, as you really learn to view yourself through a different lens, it gets easier. Like, of course, I'm still mad about things. I'm still mad about how society portrays women and all of the injustice against women in particular, and especially women who have less privilege in this realm. But at the same time, I am not personally struggling at all with this stuff. I won't say at all. There are some times when I'm you know, insulted or reminded that my looks aren't quite up to par and that I could maybe have some other thing if I looked differently. But when it really comes down to it, I think as people build resilience, it stings less. All of these reminders in our, in our culture about who gets the most value and, and patriarchy and sexism and all of that, it stings less because we're working against it. And you see progress in places where you wouldn't otherwise see it or be able to see it when you're not pushing against it and you're kind of just like letting it wash over you. And that I think has been really empowering. For those who haven't yet read your amazing book, can you define resilience, specifically body image resilience? Yeah, that's the reason we wrote the book. There are a lot of people who can get you pissed off about the ways media has turned us against our own bodies, but there are not a lot of people talking about the solutions. And for Lexi and I, the solution really appeared in our research during our PhDs when we started taking health promotion classes. And a lot of them revolved around these ideas of positive psychology. One of the pioneers in this realm, he wrote all about resilience. His name's Glenn Richardson. And as we started looking into resilience, we started noticing these parallels between the negative things that they were describing as the prompts that get people into a potential resilience cycle. So a negative thing happens, and then that's the prompt that causes you to react. People tend to react in one of three ways. One of the ways is to stay in your comfort zone, just kind of par for the course, where you reintegrate back into the same zone you were before. And then sometimes you reintegrate with loss. In terms of body image, we call it sinking deeper into shame. That's where people are self-harming abusing drugs, alcohol, prescription drugs, whatever, ultimately numbing themselves and ending up feeling worse afterward. But then there's this opportunity for resilience. 
And we started recognizing that self-objectification kind of fit this model, but there was no way out of it. There was no real path toward resilience. There was only explanations of how we keep ending up in the cycle. And so Lexi was the first one to to recognize, she was doing more research on self-objectification at the time. And she started to recognize that these prompts that get us into a potential resilience cycle are happening constantly in a culture that reminds us that our beauty is the most important thing. And so we're always being prompted to self-objectify. We're always being reminded that we need to suck it in and keep our chins up and get the grease off our faces and whatever the prevailing issue is at the time. And there's always a hundred of them. But we end up getting back into the cycle because we we fix whatever issue we think is going on at the time. And then ultimately we're reminded once again, maybe it's 10 minutes later, an hour, a month later, that our bodies are just not up to par. So we decided to create a model and test it to help people build body image resilience, not just like the standard general idea of resilience, but something really particular to body image and self-objectification. So Body image resilience is this idea that you go through hard things and they are inevitable in our society, but ultimately those hard things don't have to make you feel worse about yourself or treat your body worse. They can be opportunities for change. They can be these reminders, like a spark, a catalyst that says, okay, all of a sudden I'm feeling like I need to go on a new diet. I need to go run a hundred miles. I need to schedule a plastic surgery. Anything that reminds us to self-objectify that increases the shame that we're feeling about our bodies causes us to respond, to react. And so we identified that people sink deeper into shame in the ways that I just pointed out with coping by numbing ourselves and hurting ourselves. We recognize that people will hide and fix. That's the comfort zone level. People will make plans for cosmetic surgery or sometimes get cosmetic surgery, will go on a new diet, buy new clothes, makeup, whatever. We're trying to fix whatever it is that sparked that shame in the moment. And it feels fine for a moment. We're back in that comfort zone, but we're still at risk of another prompt that causes us to self-objectify, another wave of disruption, we call it. And we recognize that when you can teach people to recognize those moments as an opportunity for change, then you give them an opportunity to be conscious of what's going on and to then consciously make a decision about a new way to behave. And we know we have identified a hundred skills that people can use to push back against beauty ideals in their lives and against self-objectification and feel better about their bodies in real tangible ways. But how do people decide to do those things? How do people even get to a point where they want to do those things? They first have to recognize all the ways that they're being harmed by objectification and by self-objectification. And when we keep sinking deeper into shame or hiding and fixing and clinging to that comfort zone, there's never a moment or an opportunity to be reflective and to decide that that's not really working and that we're back in the same cycle we've always been in. And when you stop and be conscious of it and you take three deep breaths and relax your stomach and identify what is happening, give it a name. I am self-objectifying right now. I am buying into sexist ideals that have never served me, that have never helped me, and all the fixes have never worked for me before. So what am I going to do differently? And that's when you have an opportunity to dig into that resilience toolbox and figure out what is going to help in this moment. What prompted that feeling? What can I do right now? Is it a media fast? Is it like going cold turkey from social media and other media just for a few days in order to recalibrate and resensitize yourself? Is it repeating some mantras? Is it going on a walk, just breathing, just feeling your physical body, your physical senses, and getting back inside this body that's your home? 
ultimately we want people to stop this splitting from themselves where you leave your body to self-objectify, to watch yourself, to monitor yourself, to see yourself as an object in need of fixing. We want people to stop that split and to come back home to their body that has always been their home, that they were born into. They've experienced every moment of life within all the hard things, all the good things about having a body. It is your home. And when you stop making it your enemy and your embarrassing burden, it becomes a realm of solitude. You can come back to yourself and to be embodied once again. It feels really abstract to people, but the practices that get you there are so healing. And that's how you build this resilience over time. It's like you're flexing a muscle, you're strengthening a muscle using the skill set. And that's how we heal and ultimately how we gain more strength to be able to push back and to dismantle these systems that are perpetuating harm, not only on our generation today, but the generations coming up who will have to bear these same burdens that we've been unsuccessfully dealing with our entire lives. We've got to do something differently. Yeah, yeah. What I'm hearing you say is that it well, takes an extraordinary amount of self-talk. And one reason why I think podcasts in particular and audiobooks, I read your book twice on audio. Oh, love um, it. The reason why I like it and therapy, like talk, right, is because you literally hear the words that you will hopefully later be telling yourself. Yeah. And aside from that, the, you know, extraordinary amount of self-talk, recognizing that every time you might be having a low body image moment that's triggered by something, whether you can identify the trigger or not, it's it's also an opportunity because getting through that is the only thing that's going to build body image resilience. It's yes. not, you know, <laughs> doing the face full of makeup, the drag, the losing weight, the whatever to temporarily numb yourself from feeling that shame, I guess, is like the big heavy word for it. It's almost like going through the thick of that shame and talking yourself through it. And that's when it makes the biggest difference. Yes. Reminds me a lot of a workshop I hosted. This girl asked me a question. She was like, I feel great on the days I feel great, but what do I do on the days I don't feel good? And I'm like, those are the days. (laughs) Those are the days that make the difference. That is the opportunity. Oh, I love that so much. That really is, that's your moment. When you're going through this body image disruption, when the feelings are at the surface about you feeling defined by how you look and hating how you look and whatever the particular thing is, that is the time when you do flex those muscles because it's hard and because you need to. Basically, I tell people like, do it anyway. That's where to start. If you're feeling self-conscious and you don't want to go swimming, you don't want to go to the dance class that you normally love, you don't want to go on a walk, you don't want to go on a date to a dance, whatever do it anyway. That's when you learn that it was never that bad in the first place, that you could do it all along. That's where you find new friends, new activities, new connections that bring you more happiness, more opportunities to use your body as an instrument instead of looking at it as an ornament. That's like the mantra over everything Lexi and I teach. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. And when we're so worried about how it looks, we stop ourselves from doing so many things that make life worth living, make our bodies worth living in, you know, Mm -hmm. to just simply do the thing that you're worried about. I feel like nine times out of 10, people will end up having a positive experience in those moments, even without being really conscious of like using the skills that you've learned and repeating the mantras, just simply doing it anyway is the first step. And it can teach you so much more than hiding and avoiding those things ever would. 
Yeah, 100%. And that mantra of your body is an instrument, not an ornament was a big inspiration for my TED Talk. I say like your body is not an image, it's an experience. Mm, Love that. I think the word body image itself can be deceiving. I mean, it's the best word we have right now. But your TED Talk and your book, like I have devoured all the books about confidence, mental health, self-love. And yours I read twice thanks to a friend who was like, do you want to read this together and then discuss? And that was really powerful too, just knowing that we had so many of the similar experiences. So I hate that you and Lexi went through all that, but the way you've been able to reflect and like research what's going on and present it in a very digestible way has just been transformative. So I can't recommend more than a body enough. Oh, thank you. That honestly means so much. I know there's so much information out there. You know, Lexi and I started doing this research back in like 2006, seven. Mm-hmm. And that was before it was a real buzzword. Like people weren't really talking about body image at the time. Every celebrity wasn't talking about body positivity. So some of the things we started researching are mainstream today. Like some of the things we started teaching are just kind of common knowledge for a lot of people today, especially in kind of progressive circles. But a lot of it still isn't, and it needs Mm -hmm. to be. Like there's still some kind of prevailing notions about what it means to have positive body image and how to get it that are wrong. And I think leading people down a path that isn't ultimately like sustainable or fulfilling in any way. And so that means a lot that it resonated with you despite you being immersed in everything. One last thing before we farewell, my self-lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.